Welcome to the Alan and Overy podcast series on the future of banking. My name is Roger Louis. I'm a partner based in Hong Kong and co-head of the firm's global bank sector group. In this, the first in a series of in-depth conversations about the most significant legal and regulatory challenges facing banks, I'll be discussing the implications of greenwashing and broader ESG risks with my partners, Andrew Denny and Matt Townsend. Andrew is a partner in ANO's litigation team and head of the Global Business and Human Rights Practice. Matt is co-head of our International Environment, Climate and Regulatory Law Groups and is also the founder of the firm's Global ESG Group. Welcome both. So let's contextualize this conversation a little. There's been a lot on greenwashing and just ESG risk in general for every industry and in particular for banks as well. What are the conversations that are being had now? My understanding is that um, they have shifted over time. Um, So Matt, perhaps you'd like to take us through that. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Uh, It's been very interesting journey, I think it's fair to say. Um, Yes, you know, we've talked to clients across sectors for many years around greenwashing, but actually historically in a pretty narrow sense. And financial institutions were always very cognizant of it, but never to the extent that we now see. And I think the tone of the conversations that we see with uh, many of our financial institution clients changed, uh, I think, probably about 12 months ago. And I think there's a number of drivers and and reasons behind that. I mean, first of all, I think clearly we are seeing a significant uptick in focus from NGOs, stakeholders and others on the type of financial products being brought to the market, the labels that they are being given, the statements that are generally being put out there in the market across the whole range of banking activities at a much greater level of external scrutiny than I think we've ever seen before. Why is that? Well, in a sense, the answer to that is obvious. Uh, It's a sign of the times and given the level of focus on the climate transition, the drive to net zero. I think it's also an inevitable consequence of many central bankers saying that if we don't successfully get the financing right on the climate transition, then we have a systemic financial problem. So the tone and context of the discussion around Um, sustainability and climate in particular has shifted as we all know and most if not all of our clients particularly those in financial services are faced with a blizzard of regulatory change we're the biggest change in law program I can ever remember and so with that brings a much greater level of activity in this space plus I mean on a positive note you know we speak to many of many of our banking clients who are actually doing some fantastic work in this space in terms of sustainable banking products globally. And there's an awful lot happening in this being led by the market in this arena. But again, with that comes greater scrutiny, greater expectation, and um, greater questions, which I think is a good thing, actually, to say, well, okay, if we now are expecting the market to respond in the way it, it is starting to do, then what we don't want is a market failure issue. And if we get a load of financial products out in that market, which are carrying labels, which are meaningless or largely kind of waffle, then we have a problem. So you have to have veracity around, particularly around the financial product side of things. The final quick observation, just to kind of set the context, Roger, you know, greenwashing in and of itself is a bit of kind of fast and loose phrase. There's an awful lot of kind of issues, I think, that are bundled into that. I mean, the obvious and immediate one is you're mis- 
leading or you're misrepresenting something, whether an activity or, or a product, by either a statement you're making or by an omission. But people also talk about greenwashing and use the label in the context of target setting. And, you know, are we on track to meet our uh, transition, our net zero targets? Have we, in a sense, overstated where we're at with that? Are we on that journey in the way that we think we are? How have we communicated that to investors and so forth? And so the phrase is kind of used pretty widely. And we see it. Another good example would be in the carbon market space around carbon credits and, you know, the veracity of those. Do they truly represent a a valid and legitimate uh, reduction uh, or removal of carbon debate? So it's a very much an umbrella term. And uh, we'll no doubt kind of unpick that in a bit more detail. Thank you very much, Matt. And yes, you're absolutely right. The feeling is that the products, as the products are rolled off, which is a good thing, then yes, there's focus on uh, abuse and, and the gates around that protecting consumers. And we will talk a little bit more later about disclosure and how this is different from disclosure on anything else on any kind of financial product that goes out. But it seems as if where we are now in terms of the evolution is that there actually may be some claims that are out there already testing all these things that we're talking about, and in particular claims against financial institutions. Andrew, perhaps you could talk a little bit about what particular risks there are for banks and financial institutions and being targets and also what types of claims you've been seeing. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Roger. I think the reason that banks are a particular target for these sorts of claims really comes down to three things. Firstly, banking's obviously a heavily regulated industry. And when you bring in rules, you bring in regulations, and you bring in pretty stringent enforcement of those regulations, that brings the opportunity for people to bring follow-on claims off the back of that. I think we'll start to see that as the regulatory enforcement um, investigations start start to come in. Secondly, I think it's just the complexity of the financial services industry and these products. If you talk as a consumer product, whether or not you know my box of tissues is particularly green, it's not a simple question, but it doesn't have the complexity of a green financial product where you might need to look back several levels to work out the carbon impact and to work out whether or not it does have the impact or the lack of impact that you see. And thirdly is value. It's quite a simple point, but if you look at the consumer side of things, the only real greenwashing claims out there are all the diesel gate claims. And why is that? Because cars are a high value consumer product. That's why you don't really have many other products of that type on the consumer side. But in the financial space, obviously, there's a lot more money at stake. Financial products are generally higher value, and therefore the potential for loss to be suffered and for claims to be brought if things don't turn out to be as green as they're marketed is therefore quite obvious. So yes, uh, we are talking about a lot being at stake, and therefore uh, there is a responsibility in terms of what we're doing with these products. So in terms of actual claims, what are you seeing, Andrew, against financial institutions? Well, as always, um, it probably helps to start more widely the financial institutions um, because you've got to look at trends and 
I think the regulations, particularly take the UK for example, the regulations are really just coming in now. So let's look more widely and whatever you want to detect litigation trends, you start in the US. And in the US, the big issue really is securities claims. The US, very fertile market for securities law claims, and we've seen that. They generally fall into two types. It's claims in relation to companies that are marketing themselves as green. They're putting themselves out there and presenting themselves as green. And he claims on behalf of investors suggesting that they're not as green as they suggest. And that has therefore caused loss to investors um, and shareholders. And of the other type, it's really about companies who are said to be concealing the impact of climate change on their business. And there we're really talking about the oil majors, securities claims that we're seeing against the oil majors in the States. But what I think is really quite interesting, we're seeing this not only in the US, but elsewhere in the world, is the use of consumer protection legislation and advertising regulation to enable claims to be brought. And that actually, outside the US, has been the major source of claims. People, again, companies marketing themselves as green, making green claims about their business as a whole. And we've seen the advertising regulators crack down on the basis that, well, if you're going to present the upside, if you're going to present the positive things that you're doing as a company overall, or as a financial institution, you've also got to present that in a balanced way, that if you omit something that is material in relation to those claims, that may well be considered to be misleading under advertising legislation. And there's a read across there from advertising legislation, which requires, or particularly in the UK, requires that things, uh, that there not be material omissions, to securities litigation, where you see, in particular in the context of prospectus, that if you're going to put information out there, you need a prospectus out there, you have to ensure that it includes all material information, and you can be sued if there are Emissions. So I think if I can put it this way, absolutely full on securities litigation in the US where you'd expect it. The rest of the world perhaps not having quite so well developed a securities litigation market. It may yet come, but we're seeing the tentative shots being fired by the use by both the advertising regulators and also the use of advertising laws to bring consumer class actions, particularly in Europe. But I do wonder whether that will start to be followed now by securities actions outside the US, particularly brought by NGOs. And that's another feature of a lot of this litigation, particularly outside the US, is the use of strategic litigation by NGOs. NGOs don't really care that much whether or not they recover loss. That's not what it's about. It's about making a point about putting pressure on it's trying to change behavior so even where there are issues over recovery of loss you may will still see ngos bringing claims to try and put pressure on regarding disclosure either to give better disclosure to give a more accurate picture or to even suggest that some products should not be presented as green at all
Thank you for that, Andrew. Some interesting points there in terms of the interactions between consumer laws, securities laws, advertising laws, and maybe we'll come back to that when we talk about disclosure a little bit later on. But I had a question about how financial institutions are currently reacting to this. And leaving aside directors' duties and senior management responsibility, which I think we should talk about a little bit later specifically, for both of you, Andrew and Matt, how do you think the industry currently is reacting to all of this? Well, I think we are in a fairly rapid stage of evolution, Roger, actually, in reality. I mean, I don't think I've spoken to any clients that would sit there and say, hand on heart, you know, we have all this button down because actually in many cases you can't. There are external factors in play. And if an NGO wants to bring a claim, fundamentally, they can at least launch the claim and off they go. A lot of the conversations I'm having with clients around the kind of governance and controls, there's an awful lot of work being done in that space as the kind of machine is being built and kind of added on to the existing extensive, you know, governance control, senior manager regimes, et cetera, that we we're all very familiar with. But asking the question, actually, what does our governance system need to look like from a sustainability risk perspective? And that's obviously both in the defensive sense from a, you know, if we are the subject of litigation, as well as simply complying with the plethora of regulation that we now see coming down the line. I spent a lot of time talking to clients around governance and systems in the introduction of the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which in a sense was one of the first in Europe at least, first big hitting regulatory changes. So there's a lot of focus around that. I think there's a lot of focus ancillary to that, which is given the complexity of of a typical major global financial institution, how do we properly govern the thousands, you know, if not more of financial products that are going out into the market day in, day out and where the reality is that you know, bankers in the market are seeking to be innovative, and that's a good thing, and that's what we need as part of the kind of transition efforts. We need market innovation. We don't just need heavy-handed regulation. And so, you know, as those products evolve or develop, the fundamental question underpinning that is: okay, what's the governance and what are the systems that we need to have around that to ensure that we're not shooting ourselves in the foot? I think the other theme of conversations at the moment is around directors' liabilities. And I know we'll hopefully come onto this in more detail, but I think both within financial institutions and outside that sector and across multiple sectors, that is a very, very common question about what should I be thinking about as a director? What should I be asking our executive team about how far do I prod and poke this? And how far uh, people obviously have looked at litigation around the world and those attempts to... um, let's put it this way, attempts to examine and test the the scope of directors' duties when it comes to climate in particular, but not exclusively. And actually, you know, could that type of claim be brought in our direction and how well protected are we? So I think that's a key point. I think the final observation, now Andrew will have some thoughts around this as well. There's also an awful lot of discussion with clients around taxonomies. So boiling this down to a very simplistic kind of overview is, you know, one of the challenges at the heart of all kind of greenwashing conversations is, well, if you're using terms like sustainability and ESG, what on earth does it actually mean? 
And advertising authorities, to pick up on Andrew's point, advertising authorities have over the many years actually picked up on this. So this is not, in a sense, nothing necessarily new. They've kind of raised their game, I think, over the last year or so uh, in certain jurisdictions. But um, so there's a problem with terminology. So ANSA, in theory at least, is taxonomy. And you build out a very detailed framework which helps put some definition around it. The point I want to make on this, though, is that that is not a safe harbour. And what we're actually seeing, particularly vis-a-vis the EU taxonomy, and of course there are multiple taxonomies now around the world, and including across Asia, is that we've created a whole you know, separate beast in and of itself in a taxonomy. And I talk to clients regularly on this topic, and it's a complex exercise actually applying a very detailed taxonomy regulation and, and delegated acts and so forth to the real world of banking products and financial services. So regulatory complexity is a feature here and we have to find a way through that and institutions are tussling with that at the moment and they're right in the middle of it. And there's no convergences there currently globally in terms of taxonomy as well as standards, is that right? That's correct. So I think on the last count there was something like at least 20 different taxonomies adopted and 30 in total either adopted or in the pipeline. So one of the ways that you would say, well, actually, we try and mitigate our litigation exposure is by having certainty, clarity over phraseology, plus the governance piece. You know, taxonomies give us that answer, don't they? Well, they may do eventually, but actually we're seeing a number of our clients, and we're supporting them on this, developing their own very stringent internal guidelines over the use of some of these labels, and their own, in a sense, mini taxonomies to make sure that if the question is asked, well, what does that label mean and is it appropriate for that product, that there's a good answer and it's robust and there's proper oversight over how that decision is being made. I think one of the really interesting things in this area is if you look back 15, 20 years, ESG in general was the subject of quite fluffy language. It was the sort of aspirational language you know, people tried to paint themselves as nice and you know, doing all these l- lovely things. And there was a real looseness about the language because it was seen as more of a CSR marketing exercise rather than a hard-edged regulatory exercise. And I think there's been a real movement of the industry away from this sort of tendency to use this sort of very aspirational fluffy language to being really having to be very precise because this stuff really matters now and um, matters a huge amount. And I, just a personal observation on that, I practiced in environmental law for nearly three decades. I actually very much welcome that because I was always instinctively very uncomfortable, as were many clients actually, about that fluffiness. And so the quicker we can get to a point where environmental data, which is a separate topic in and of itself, and sustainability data, terminology is well-defined. People know what it means. They can compare product A to product A from a different institutions and say, actually, I prefer you know product A1 and away you go. The better it will be. And from a litigation perspective, as, as Andrew will no doubt talk about and well knows, that's got to help as part of your mitigation strategy. Don't make yourself vulnerable by having information out there which is aspirational, nice to have or is just loose and apply the same vigor and I know that this is really what many if not all of our financial institution clients are doing but apply the same level of discipline to this information 
as you would do to your financial data. And that's what central bankers have been saying for a number of years, that that's where we need to ultimately get to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see that in these first advertising cases, sort of quite aspirational statements being really pounced on by the regulator and saying, no, if you want to put yourself out there and market yourself in this way, you've got to be precise and you've got to be accurate and you've got to be complete. And I think that may well form the part, the basis of, like I say, securities claims with people who don't follow that path. And even in relation to product claims, which we haven't seen a lot of product claims yet. In fact, I'm not, I'm not aware of any real civil claims about products. But you can see how that same approach will have to apply. It's going to have to be complete, accurate, not fluffy, not aspirational. Can I ask a controversial question then? Does the precision in itself create risks in that if we are being very precise about what we're trying to shoot for, would that paint financial institutions into a corner? Um, in particular, where I would expect that the science may change in terms of what constitutes what. Is this something that anybody's looked at before? I didn't. Um, I mean, it's a very good question, actually, Roger. I mean, there is clearly a risk of being a bit too precise. And, you know, the non-lawyers of the world who are listening to this will be slightly rolling their eyes, you know, saying a lawyer's yet again telling me I need to, you know, put pages and pages of description against my product. So I think I would recognize there's a balance to be kind of struck. I apply actually in my mind a very simple test that if you're putting a description on a product or you're making a statement in your annual report or your TCFD report and somebody asks the question, what's the basis of this statement? You have to have an answer to that and you have to explain this is what it means. And that has to be, you know, robust. So, you know, but instinctively, I also do prefer greater precision, but then that's why I'm a lawyer. Um, so there is a balance here, of course. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see where we head because, you know, should your reporting, should some of you, you know, say take the prospectus on a bond issuance, you know, is it just going to be 200 pages of disclaimers and, um, and a definition of sustainable, which nobody's ever going to read until they want to sue you? So I think, you know, a sensible balance needs to be struck. I don't really see if you, as long as you're precise and all the things that I've just talked about, that's got to be better from where we are today. Yeah, it's interesting, particularly in the context of forward-looking projections. I'm not sure whether it was Mark Twain or Yogi Berra said it. It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. And if you start to say, well, you've got to be precise about what might happen in the future, I get your point. I mean, you can't be. I think it's there. It's a matter of being clear about what is a projection, what assumptions it's based on, and the fact that ultimately it may not come true. You're just being clear that this is what we're planning, but you know, shares can go up as well as down, as, as down as well as up, as everyone knows. So I think there it's not so much being precise about what you are going to do, it's being precise about what you know and what you don't know and what the uncertainties are. So it's not dissimilar to financial projections for which the financial sector has an entire playbook to deal with. No, I don't think it is, actually. I think it's it's very similar. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a matter of applying that same discipline to this new area. Well, that's an interesting point, actually, Roger. So 
I spend a lot of time with clients looking at their environmental and ESG reports, and we have this very debate. And we are at a, quite an early stage, I'd say, in the kind of how the market will generally set the level of acceptable disclosures and the level of disclaimers that go with it. So, so folk, with our help, writing their disclaimers and the limitations on some of this information for the first time, they are asking the question, do we just cut and paste essentially the kind of standard disclaimers that we'd use on some of our financial data into this context? And I do think there's some adaptation that's needed. Where Andrew's absolutely right, where the nervousness is, is um, particularly when it comes to scenario planning, it's the forward-looking analysis scenario planning, which folk are doing for the first time. So that deep well of expertise on your financial disclosures Yes, has some read across, but ultimately you're, what you're doing is you're modelling, you know, a 1.5, a 2 degree, a 4 degree scenario, which, um, you know, and with all the kind of external consultant support in the world, directors and others are having to sign off on that. And so the assumptions are absolutely critical around those type of models. I think regulators do realise that folk are doing this for the first time and it's going to take time in the market to settle down. And there will indeed, you know, be a standard market practice essentially as to what investors and others expect to see, the level of disclaimers that go with the reports and that type of information. So that is indeed a kind of area of focus. But that will, you know, that will bed down, I think, relatively quickly. I would make a prediction though, and this is always very dangerous to do this, particularly as a lawyer, you know, I do think we're gonna see a number of folk come to the markets and actually say we are not on track with some of our targets we're having to kind of revisit where we're at in terms of transition planning and the implementation of that and some of the milestone targets because there's no doubt and this is not in any way a criticism of financial services industry because i I would make this comment across the board you know there's been a for very good reasons there's been a dash to make commitments net zero etc etc the whole range of targets and methodology you can adapt and you can apply rather but the standards and the detail that sits behind each of those has been very much a kind of moving feature and an evolving feature. And plus, for a lot of institutions, actually, their ability to hit some of these targets, particularly vis-a-vis Scope 3, is out of their hands, actually. Uh, it's about how the market responds. For some, it's about government policy, etc. So we may well see folks say actually having to take a more nuanced approach as regards their 2030, 2050 targets. So are you seeing those narratives slightly changing in terms of how institutions are putting out statements as to their aspirations? Very much so. I think this is something else which is linked to the kind of greenwashing, hence my comment at the beginning about it being something on a kind of umbrella term. There is much more caution now than I think we've seen ever before in this space around those type of statements, that information for that reason. So I think we're seeing much more explicit disclaimers go with that, a much better and detailed explanation of the factors that will influence those targets being met. And actually, you know, ultimately it's a more granular explanation of the journey, which, you know, as I say to clients, that explanation is the key part of it, right? Because every institution, every business is on a journey, quite frankly. So as long as that is explained in a granular robust way, then that kind of is what it is, in a sense, and we shouldn't be too defensive or shy about that. Great. And before we leave reporting and disclosure and monitoring, there's one last question I wanted to ask, which is, we talked about the fact that there is no convergence between regulators. Is there any push towards convergence? 
But on the other hand, is there any form of regulatory arbitrage or regulators actually wanting to distinguish themselves by having slightly different standards? Well, unfortunately, I think we are in an era of significant fragmentation. And I think we're going to be in that period for quite some time. And observations we hear all the time from clients is, you know, we are we operate in 35 jurisdictions. We've got 25 different reporting regimes, all applying slightly different standards, slightly different terminology, slightly different taxonomies, but we want to be consistent. And so that's a barrier, actually, and a hindrance to effective market operation, in my view, to get to where we want to get to on transition. Will that be solved? Well, in the reporting sphere, there's obviously a lot of work being done at ISSB uh, and uh, Level and SASB. And so there is a hope we will get to what is generally regarded as kind of global benchmark for reporting on sustainability. But that's taking some time. And it's by no means certain that everybody will simply implement and adopt those standards, although many governments have indicated that they will do so. So that's going to be slow, but I can absolutely see convergence over reporting reporting data. But, you know, it comes back to the fundamental question that if you're applying slightly different definitions because you've got to apply your local taxonomy, then that, you know, you can have the same framework, but then there'll be some local nuance. And in other areas where you may have narrative star reporting in, say, your TCFD report, I'm afraid I think we are still going to be in that period of fragmentation for some time to come. Good. Thank you for that. Let's turn to director's duties and senior management responsibility, Andrew, because we have identified a lot of potential risk areas for financial institutions when this falls on the board and senior management. What would you be your advice in terms of how they could mitigate liability? The primary risk area for a director on the litigation side, the bit that you're worried about, is generally prospectus liability because you're going to have to stand behind that prospectus and sign off and generally you will have civil liability if its contents turn out to be inaccurate and you can't show a reasonable belief, say, in the accuracy of those contents. So that's where, if I'm a director, I'm going to be all over that prospectus situation, whether it be a bond issuance, a rights issuance, or whatever, and making sure that the information, particularly in relation to ESG issues, has been due diligence thoroughly, that you can stand behind, you've got the evidence to stand behind those statements. Now, one of the mitigants, and this is worth noting, is a lot of the disclosure, the regulatory, the more stringent ESG disclosure obligations apply not to the prospectus, but to the annual report and other public statements. And those generally have a higher level of threshold for liability. Generally speaking, it'll be a lot harder to bring a claim against a director if you can at all. So I think from a director's point of view, I'm going to want to make sure that, you know, that you don't generally just lift and place information from annual report and other statements straight into the prospectus. The prospectus has to be tailored for both requirements and for with one eye on the liability regime. From a regulatory perspective, a director and a financial institution or a senior manager, obviously 
your focus is different. And I suspect this is going to be the more major area of concern for um, senior individuals inside financial institutions, as always. And I think the key here is the message coming from regulators is they do not expect to see all of this pushed down to the control functions, to second line. They want to see senior managers, directors taking responsibility for this and really driving that. I think there's a lot of concern about taking wrong decisions. I mean, we've talked a lot about projections and the difficulties of making projections and predicting how things might turn out. I think regulators understand that and they will distinguish between decisions that didn't turn out to be the right decision with a bit of hindsight, poor decisions, and decisions that are poorly made. In other words, if you've got the right framework in place, if you're getting the right information, you've got a good control structure, and you're making sure that the work is being done to due diligence these statements, and it turns out that something was wrong, you're in a much better position than if you don't have that framework in place. So I think that is probably the little the touchstone, that distinction between a decision that with the benefit of hindsight turns out to be poor and a decision that was poorly made. Do we feel that senior management and boards are asking the right questions to protect themselves in terms of those risks? Are they equipped to even ask the questions? Yeah, I'd say um, in financial services, I'd say generally, yes. Um, my experience is that when I talk to boards, is that they're asking the right questions. There's been, you know, cases where perhaps one or two have kind of just said, well, you know, here's our sustainability expert on the board and he or she, you know, over to you. And I'm not sure that's the right the right way to do it. So boards have to ask themselves, what capabilities have we currently got? What capabilities do we need? And indeed, the um, what kind of questions should we be posing to the executive management team in this space? And we yeah, you know, have a program for uh, helping to train incoming NEDs. And you know, the common question from that is, you know, where do I get, I'm an experienced NED, but I'm you know, either stepping up into a new role um, and it's going to take me in a slightly different direction skills-wise. So where do I learn a little bit more on uh, sustainability? How do I kind of improve my own know-how? And indeed, you know, make sure I'm comfortable, I'm asking the right questions. So I think overall, I'd be pretty positive about that. I don't think it's a complete picture uh, or a complete story that's finished yet. So I think boards are still themselves learning. I think there is more expertise out there now than there was three, four, five years ago. I think the other question just in terms of expertise and um, capability also is, have a look at the kind of tier one or two down from boards. So actually what sustainability expertise do we need? And whether that's in the legal function or in the compliance function or whatever else it may be, because we are getting an awful lot of requests for clients to say, listen, we are, we are trying to recruit you know, sustainability specialist in this area or that, not necessarily always legal, but across the business. So you've got to look at that, I think, in a sense, root and branch from the board uh, the board downwards. But but I think overall the picture is positive, but still boards are adapting. I think it comes back to that point which we were talking about before, about some of the stuff being put in the CSR bucket 
you know, 10, 15 years ago and it being seen as a sort of a part of a, a branding exercise. And therefore it's a matter of taking it out of that CSR bucket and putting it firmly in the risk, the central risk bucket. And that obviously requires a different approach. It may require different people. And I think we're seeing that transition. I don't know what you think, Matt, but yeah. th that's certainly what I've seen. And particularly amongst internal legal functions, um, we've seen a lot more, particularly at the banks, the financial institutions, a lot more people appointed head of ESG legal that, you know, seeing it as a legal risk, looking at the legal, what needs to be done on the legal side. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Just reflecting on the conversation, actually, I mean, one other common point we get, I get back from clients at board level is, you know, it's coined a phrase, it's the unknown unknowns. You know, I'm sitting here on a board, I'm not, you know, unlike you lawyers, I'm not going to be sitting there reading the detail of, you know, Regulation 220 that's just been issued. Um, and so how do I and we as a business kind of keep a grip on that and understand and prioritise the horizon? And that's, that is a big challenge. However many people you have in an organisation, in compliance, in legal, uh, and whatever expertise you have on the board, that's universally with clients and others we speak to in the sector is the major headache, just the volume of change. So being able to navigate that, leave behind what you can leave behind and focus on the immediate priorities, that is a big challenge for many organisations. And, um, you know, let's not forget, I mean, coming back to the hard kind of reality of if the worst happens and litigation is brought. I mean, there are cases, as Andrew well knows, specifically targeted at directors looking to test the elasticity of whether it's a statutory or regulatory framework for directors' duties. I mean, in that, in my view, more of those claims will come because in many, many jurisdictions, as we all know, directors' duties tend to be pretty uh, generically defined, pretty loose in concept, fairly malleable and adaptable. And the push and the debate in academic circles and then in NGOs, which is often where, if you look historically, this is where this starts, and then it, 10 years hence it kind of moved into the real world and on the statute books, is let's have more detail, more prescription, and more explicit duty making. And now there may be some directors that say, actually, that's a good thing, because then at least I know what I'm dealing with, rather than trying to strike this balance. Uh, when I look at the UK law, for example, it's pretty high level and it's pretty generic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we do see NGOs, um, academics, push for a concept of directors owing a duty, not just to the company, but to other outside stakeholders. I think that becomes, from a litigation perspective, very difficult, particularly in the context of the climate. You end up owing a duty, effectively, to the world at large. So I would be surprised if we move to an explicit wider duty like that. But it is important to note, as Matt said, the malleability of the existing regime. And in particular, although generally speaking, directors owe their duties to the company, what we are seeing is quite innovative claims saying, by failing to put in place a proper climate change strategy, by failing to take account of the impact that climate change and the accompanying regulation may have on the company itself, the directors are actually breaching their duty to the company and they're causing the company to suffer loss. And we're already seeing those sorts of 
quite innovative claims coming through. I think the difficulty with them will be until such time as we're 10, 15 years down the track, we probably won't know whether or not the company has made the wrong decision. But nonetheless, and I come back to the point that I made almost at the outset, quite frankly, a lot of these claims brought by NGOs, it's not about winning. It's not about recovering loss. It's about putting pressure on. And given the current environment, it wouldn't surprise me if we see more of these sorts of claims. Fascinating. Why don't we wrap this up? If I were to ask both of you in terms of the immediate steps and risk points that you think financial institutions should be focusing on, and then also just scanning the horizon a bit in terms of what you think is coming down in the subject, Matt. Let me take the second question first, if I may, Roger. So just super briefly, things to keep an eye on. The single biggest thing in my mind is what we call the CSDD. So it's European Proposals for Supply Chain Due Diligence, which I know if you, if you use the words due diligence, it doesn't necessarily set the heart racing. But on this one, there is a very fierce debate that's ongoing about whether financial institutions are in scope or out of scope. And if they are brought into scope, that actually is a, uh, a very significant regulatory step in terms of what's required. Despite the title, it's not just about due diligence. It's about your value chains and how you report information and your duties vis-a-vis -vis your value chains. So a lot of clients quite worried about that. And there's an awful lot in the pipeline on enhanced reporting. So I would keep a very close eye on that. On your first question in terms of just, you know, how do we boil it down, <laughs> whether it's mitigation or things just to be thinking about. If I was sitting there as a director of a major financial institution, you know, I would be asking myself, do I properly understand this issue? And that may sound like a very strange question, but do I properly understand, am I properly equipped to ask the right questions? And do I feel that the organization has a proper governance grip around this? Are the systems robust enough? is the coherence around that and do I properly understand where our vulnerability is and do we have controls in terms of what we are saying to investors, our customers, NGOs and the markets generally on a global level. Thank you, Matt. Andrew? Yeah, I'd completely endorse what Matt said about the CSDD, um, particularly given that we've already got in specific European jurisdictions similar sort of due diligence legislation, and we are seeing claims against financial institutions suggesting that they should be doing due diligence in relation to their lending activities and, for example, the climate impact of their borrowers, and that if their failure to do so may mean that they are liable. On the more greenwashing side, um, what I think will be really interesting to see is whether we start to see more product-based claims. As I said at the moment, most of the claims have been securities actions, advertising sort of consumer claims. Are we going to see, which are more on a sort of company-wide basis, are we going to see more product-based claims? Are we going to see claims in relation to green bonds, specific green funds, and maybe some structured green products? And I think the question there may well be, I suspect the NGOs may be a little less interested in those sort of specific product claims. So loss is going to be a bigger factor. And it'll be really interesting to see whether or not there is actually a correlation and the level of correlation in particular products of the level of greenness with the price of that product. Is there going to be loss suffered? Now that said, what we have seen in the past 
is people using these sorts of mis-selling claims to get themselves out of onerous products, products that have done badly for reasons completely unrelated to green issues. And so what we might see is even if there isn't a sort of a drop in price of the value of the product because it's not so green, will people say, well, this derivative didn't work out for me because of some other factor, but hey, look, it was sold to me as green, so I'm going to use that to try and get out and get my money back. And I think we might see more of those sorts of claims coming through. Thank you very much, Andrew. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap up? I think I would like to end on a positive note, actually, Roger. The reality is financial institutions are at the absolute heart of a successful transition. Uh, If we don't shift the volume of capital that we need to shift to achieve transition and hit the targets, you know, governments and private businesses are committed to, we will ultimately fail. So, you know, inevitably when you talk of kind of litigation, greenwashing, it sounds a little bit defensive, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that uh, when we talk to our clients, they're actually hugely positive about their role in the transition and in the journey and the dynamic that effective, sustainable finance can bring. And so, so let's keep that in sight and let banks and other providers of private capital get on and do their business in a way that means they're not constantly distracted with claims and challenges and litigation, etc., and where we can have effective market operation in a transparent, robust way. So that's all about good data, consistent terminology, and products that people can compare the apples to the apples. And we get that right. Actually, that is a fundamental pillar of the transition story. Thank you. Yeah, I know it doesn't come naturally to a litigator to be positive and optimistic, but I'll do my best. I would say, adding to what Matt said, that, yeah, absolutely, financial institutions are going to be absolutely crucial and central to this progress financing the gap. I also think, though, that there is just so much huge demand for these sorts of products. People really, as their awareness of what this might happen if we don't hit these targets, comes more and more to people's consciousness. They really do want to do what they can. And often the best thing they can do is deploy their retirement savings in a way that's going to help fill the gap. And I think with all the concern about litigation, I don't think that should be seen as outweighing the need to get these products out there and do the very best to be just as straightforward and clear as you can be. Thank you very much, Andrew. So let's wrap up in this slightly more positive note. Um, Thank you both for the time you've given to this podcast and a big thank you for the audience for listening. Thank you.